Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Robert Baharian and this is Masters in Investing. They say life never stops teaching and we never stop learning. This show is my exploration with investors to both understand and unpack what is going on in markets right now and what this means for business and for investors. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us an awesome review. Let's get into it. My guest today was the chief economist for one of Australia's largest ETF providers managing in excess of $17 billion, David Bassanese. During our conversation, we talk about the collapse in the tech names all around the world whilst the broader stock market continues to edge higher. We talk about inflation, we talk about valuations and what all of this means for investors in 2021. We also talk about the role of bonds and fixed income in portfolios. We talk about the Australian property market. And we also find out what David really thinks about privatising some of Bondi's premium beachfront. I hope you enjoy my conversation today. Robert Baharian is the founder and CEO of Baharian Wealth Management, AFSL 526798. The information contained in this podcast may include general advice and does not consider your particular circumstances. You should seek advice from a registered financial advisor who can consider if the general advice is right for you. David Bassanese, the chief economist for one of Australia's largest ETF provider managing in excess of $17 billion of investor money, uh, beta shares. Welcome to Masters in Investing. Great to be with you. Uh, David, if you look at the market right now, you look at some of these big tech names that have sold off from some of their highs from six months ago, 12 months ago, and I've got some numbers here. Um, Spotify subscribers are up 21% year on year. Spotify stock is down 44% from its 52-week high. Um, Square's gross profits up about 80%. Uh, 28% below its 52-week high. If you simply look at those numbers and you looked at nothing else and you asked somebody, what do you think is going on in the stock market right now? They'll probably tell you that it's a bloodbath and the market's just hemorrhaging. But that's not what's happening in the market at the moment. Can you just give us a rundown of what you're seeing and what your point of view, David, is as to what's going on in these subsectors of the market as well as the broader market as a whole? Yeah, look, I think yeah, you're right. I think you've got to unpack a few things going on. First and foremost, the overall global equity market is actually only a little bit off its highs. So the overall global equity market, as you know, we bottomed in March last year uh, on the recovery trade, and really the market has been trending up ever since late March now uh, of, la- of last year. Um, now, what we've seen is we've seen a rotation within equity markets. So we've seen a rotation from the so-called uh, the, the tech names that some of the, the you mentioned. So technology generally was outperforming prior to COVID. So growth technology, the FANG stocks, the Googles, the Amazons, the Facebooks. COVID came along and funnily enough gave them an extra oomph, an extra kick along because um, they became, you know, there's defensive trades when people are, you know, the, the lockdowns basically meant people were shopping online. Um, working from home, so any you know anything with a technology flavour and certainly promoting you know work, uh, sh- working from home, shopping online got an extra ser- uh, period about performance. And so what we're seeing within the overall equity market is an unwinding of that COVID premium, if you like, uh, to some of the technology names um, and a more general and particularly some of those higher prime. I mean, some of the ones that you mentioned are pretty hot, richly priced. Um, you know, some earnings behind them, but it's still the probably the more, I guess, growth speculative parts of the technology market. I mean, companies like Google, Amazon, Facebook, I mean, they're off their highs, but certainly nowhere near to that extent. Um, so I think there's a few things going on. There, there, there is a rotation from the, the things that did very, very well during the COVID um, shutdowns um, and, and particularly some of those higher, higher priced I guess less proven, you know, business models. They get got a lot of potential out there, um, um, but you know how they how they go in the new COVID world. I'm sure they'll do okay, but I think they probably got a little bit over overly overly bought during the the COVID shutdown. So, so that's do, really do you think a lot of that was was being baked into the price uh, 
last year and and now is it is it David do you think that there's an expectation from investors that growth uh, of some of these companies just had to keep growing at a and whether it's growth in subscriptions growth in in top line revenue bottom line wh- whatever it is do you think there was an expectation from investors that it that had to continue at this insane pace year on year on year to justify that price and if once that once the company doesn't hit those numbers, you start to see the companies sell off. Do you think there's an element of that going on? Yeah, there is. And, and look, I think also in that in the technology area globally, and particularly in the US, you've got to distinguish between the the big blue chip. I mean, I could say blue chip, but like the big established fang companies, and the more smaller um, up and coming companies. And those smaller up and coming companies are. Pr- pretty richly valued with a lot mm. of earnings expectations priced in, a lot of hope. And they did get a massive you know, tailwind because of the COVID shutdowns. And I think what we're seeing now is really just the reality that that COVID trade, that sort of um, shutdown trade is unwinding and people are seeking value in parts of the market that were beaten up, you know, so energy, financials, consumer staples, infrastructure, travel companies, all of these sort of sectors got beaten up during COVID, have been rallying, um, you know, since the second half of last year. And um, and and that's where the, I guess the money's gravitated to. So, well, But why is that? What, what happened? What triggered investors to have this aha moment where they've realised that these particular companies relative to, so you talk about energy yep. or financials or travel companies relative to that of, of the tech, like what happened for them to say we should now maybe allocate some of our money here and not mm. not at the the fang the fang stocks uh, again yeah well i mean i guess it does come down to relative valuations i mean what happened is you know we we're enjoying a v-shaped global economic recovery so that that's what's happened and so if you, again if you think back to early last year oil prices collapsed yeah uh in fact the futures price at one point went negative yes um uh, and, and, and so what, maybe just some of collapsed. our listeners, David, like, can you just explain how a negative oil price even works? So yes. are people, are people well, literally it's a, paying it's a you to hold? Price. So it's the price of, yeah, well, exactly. I mean, the thing is when you, when you buy, it's a little bit, I'll try to explain it uh, quickly, but I mean, it's a few, basically when you buy exposure to the oil market through commodities, you're not buying physical oil, you know, you're not buying, well, some people can, like some hedge funds go out and buy container ships of oil and then park it, park it offshore. But the average, you know, investor buys a futures contract. So it's the right to delivery of a, of barrels of oil at a price in the future, at a, at a time in the future. Now, what happened briefly last year was there was an excess supply of oil uh, and storage facilities were very in short supply. So it was actually quite hard to find a place to where to store your oil mm. if you were to end up taking delivery of that oil. So it went negative, just pricing in the storage costs of basically taking delivery of that oil were you to hold that futures contract when it expired and then, you know, be, be, be expected to take delivery and then try to find a place to store it. So it was real, essentially like it was a glut of supply in the market during the shutdowns of COVID that, that caused that, that um, negative futures price. Um, the, the spot price never actually went negative, went pretty low, but um, that's really what explained that, uh, the, that situation. Sure, sure. Um, maybe if we can just but, go but back. So back so, yes, yeah, so just backing up, I mean, so energy prices collapsed, bond yields fell a lot, and they've all rebounded. Uh, and that basically rising oil prices, rising bond yields tend to support the value parts of the market, such as energy and financials, um, which is that's, I think, accounted for that. Plus, you know, the people are, you know, shop, working, you know, have left their homes, uh, shopping in stores, um, going to the offices. And so that COVID trade has unwound a little bit. So uh, that that's essentially what's, uh, I think, happening. And really what we've seen is that COVID uh, the recovery has been stronger and faster than expected. So um, that that switch from the the tech companies benefiting from the shutdowns to the more traditional companies has been, you know, pretty fast because of that 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 um, V shaped recovery that we're essentially enjoying. You're in a quite a fortunate position, David, where your company also has uh, full visibility as to where investor money is flowing through the suite of your products. 
What insights are you gaining now with that benefit? Uh, what is it that your team is seeing as, to, as it relates to where money flow is going at the moment? Yeah, look, uh, you're right. I mean, look, first, we, we actually do see a lot of two-way flow. So, you know, for example, we have um, geared funds which go up, you know, uh, 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 sort of uh, give you, um, you know, leveraged exposure to the market. We also have short funds which go go, um, you know, they benefit when the market goes down, when the equity market goes down. So people often ask us, well, what's the flow? You know, is that telling you anything? And to be honest, when the market falls, you get it, you get two-way flow. You get people that are buying the dip and you get people that are selling. So those flows uh, don't actually reveal a lot. Even when the market's rallying strongly, you see people, you know, wanting to buy the bear funds to to, 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 I guess, um, hedge their position mm. or anticipate a market correction and others buying into it. Uh, but what we're also seeing is things like that growth to value rotation, as you mentioned. So a lot of our technology type of exposure, such as the NASDAQ, I mean, that was going very well. Um, and it's still going well. We're still getting steady supply into there, but probably we're seeing a switching of investor money to some of those value parts of the market, like global banks, um, uh, global energy producers, um, European, Japanese equity. So non-US, non-technology flows have, uh, have certainly picked up in interest. So we are seeing that sort of, the sort of growth to value trade rotation, as it's called, um, as we're seeing it in the market pricing, it's also reflected in, in the flows that, that, that we're seeing. I mean, one thing we're also seeing is just ongoing growing interest in, you know, getting some international exposure through ETFs because it does offer you that, you know, very much easy, you know, if you want some exposure to global companies, it's you can just do it on the ASX now. So definitely hold you, you know, your blue chip stocks that you know well in Australia. But if you want that international exposure, that's been a very steady um, source of, you know, growth in, in, in the ETF industry in recent years. You, you're no doubt speaking to a number of um uh, folk in industry, investors and uh, money, wealth managers and financial advisors uh, around the country. What, what is it that is of great concern to them at the moment? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, I mean, one, one ongoing concern, and I'm sure you, you have it, is, you know, how to give uh, people income, how to give investors income uh, without being, you know, fully exposed to the equity market, you know, so some mm. people with their risk profile or their, you know, their stage in their, in their life cycle in retirement, you know, to have 100% exposure to the equity market, you know, you've got to deal with the ups and downs of that. Um, but meanwhile, cash and bonds are offering such a low return. Yeah. And so it's that search for defensive yield, if you like, um, thanks to, you know, central banks having slashed interest rates is, I guess, I think still the preeminent, you know, preeminent challenge um, for for for, um, for for financial planners around the country. Um, the other one, just in terms of markets at the moment, of course, we're seeing the reopening trade, the very strong rebound in economic activity, not just in Australia, but particularly in the United States. Demand is getting ahead of supply. We've had a lot of fiscal stimulus. We've still got, you know, production bottlenecks. So we're seeing some inflationary pressure um, pick up. We've seen commodity prices rise very strongly. So there is a concern about, you know, is inflation going to get out of hand? Will interest rates rise too far too fast, which is going to hurt? You know, funnily enough, you do want higher interest rates, but then again, you don't want them going too far too fast that it, you know, causes a crash in the equity market. So that's the, the concern about, you know, inflation coming back in a big way would be the major macro um, concern at the moment. Now, I personally think that is a, a short run risk. I think, you know, the market, there is a risk of a bit of a market uh, pullback uh, or correction uh, as we get a, a bout of higher inflation in the short run. But longer term, over the next two to three years, I think inflation globally will, will basically settle down again um, for structural reasons, you know, geography, you know, globalisation, technology disruption, those things haven't gone away. But we are going to go through, a, uh, I think, a... A, um, a nervous period where we're not sure whether the lift in inflation that we're likely to see, particularly in the US, is temporary, is only temporary, or maybe the start of something bigger. What do you think it is, David? Do you think it is a long and windy road until inflation really gets... Because you look at some of these these numbers, you look at core PCE, which the Federal Reserve look at, and it's well and yeah. truly below the 2% range that the Federal Reserve want to want to keep it at you look at long-term cpi in the us um 
I mean, you can zero in and manufacture any kind of narrative that you want. But once you sort of take a step back and have a look at the long-term trend, one that looks on trend, two, the core PCE uh, that the Federal Reserve looks at is below the 2% threshold. The one big thing that came out um, last week was retail and food sales, which was just this this you know total abnormal spike up and that's that's yeah. that looks really interesting um so you know what's david's perspective on all of this and what's beta share's point of view on on inflation yeah well, as a, look i'm not a believer that we're on the cusp of an inflation breakout you know like okay. something going back to the 70s and 80s you know look the, the world is different today you know back those days we didn't have globalized markets to the extent we had today for good or bad the average worker, you know, didn't have the bargaining power. Uh, they don't have the bargaining power that they did have 20, 30 years ago. Um, a lot of uh, wage contracts back in those days were inflation linked. Um, so the world is just very, very different. Um, but, you know, you mentioned the uh, core PCE. You're right, the Fed does target the... Now, we've already got an early CPI number in the US, uh, which came out uh, last week, which was actually the annual rate of core consumer price inflation on that number has now gone up to 3%. Um, and it's looking like that's probably going to flow through to the PCE over the next couple of months. So as you mentioned, it is currently below 2 but it may well break above 2 over the next few months. And that's, as I said, why that's why we're going through a nervous period where it is going to be above you know, higher than we're used to, I think, for a few months. But again, I think it's only a, a short-run reopening trade associated with, uh, you know, dislocation in, in you know, basically uh, supply chain bottlenecks. Also, um, what, what does supply chain bottleneck mean? It's basically, I mean, the government has given consumers a lot of money to spend. Um, they've increased unemployment benefits. We had JobKeeper in place for a long time uh, in Australia, but even in the US, they had a, a lot of... Um, um, household income, you know, income basically given uh, to households. So spending has run ahead of the economy's ability to produce goods. Um, and that's what's what we're seeing now as, 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 a, as a pickup in pricing. But David, isn't it also that um, related to, uh, from what I read and understand that even in, well, in the US, there is a shortage of um, good staff. So companies can't find employees to come in and open the doors to the shop and sell whatever goods or services yep. that they're selling because a number of them are still on um, government benefits at home, which I think it's September when the US, yes. our, their version of our JobKeeper runs out. Um, and so do you think there's just this a bit of a wobbly period between now and then until such time as we see what how that unfolds? Is that kind of the, the base case in, in your mind? Yeah, look... What, I mean, yeah, you're right. So in the case of the US, I mean, in the areas like hospitality, you know, restaurants, yeah. bars, those sort of areas, I mean, as you know, you make, you know wages for workers in the United States are pretty low, right? And they're, they're pretty low. They're, the minimum wage there is very, very low. So the government, you know, in its um, desire to, you know, help people out during the shutdowns actually increased the unemployment benefit that you normally get from state governments. The federal government gave this extra amount of money uh, at the same time, they wanted to increase the minimum wage, but didn't get it done. So the minimum wage didn't go up. So as you said, there's some in some areas. It's you know people have done the calculations. They actually get more money being at home on unemployment than going to you know wait on tables. Now, so the, again, and that's attracted a lot of attention. Uh, but I mean, end of the day, that is obviously a small you know it's not the whole economy. It's a small part of the economy. But in those areas, there is clearly um, I suspect, you know, at the margin, what you say is correct. There is a supply shortage of workers. And, you know, the response there is to increase wages. Ultimately, if you do want, and there's nothing to stop, you know, restaurants and bars and whatnot increasing wages if they possibly can, which is ultimately what, you know, we want to see is we want to see higher wages to some extent. Um, that's the whole part of this stimulus package. But it's funny, when you get it, people don't like it. So they want it, but... <laughs> um, but... but so, A, I wouldn't exaggerate the impact of that across the broader economy. And as you point out, um, to the extent that the unemployment benefit is creating this work disincentive effect, it is going to be fairly short run in the sense that those unemployment benefits um, are going to drop back down again uh, in September. And, and, in, and in terms of inflation, 
Um, obviously, it's supportive of some sectors, if, as you've talked about um, early on in this conversation. But why, why is inflation bad, especially from the levels that we are at now? Can you just explain why that's a bad thing for for, for stocks and for other uh, maybe risky investments? Well, in, we, we actually want to. I mean, again, prior, I mean, at the moment, central banks their biggest problem is not that inflation's too high; it's that it's been too low. Um, so, the central bank of the U.S. has a, an inflation target of two percent. We have a target of two to three percent. Now, prior to COVID and up until the last couple of months, it's been consistently below that number. So that's why we've had interest rates so low for so long. But you don't want too much of a good thing. So they want a little bit of inflation, like 2 2%, just to sort of keep the wheels in, uh, you know, some... Um, and just to back up, I mean, why they don't want really low inflation is that if you do get an economic slump, it's more likely you get outright price declines, and that can make getting out of a slump a, a bit harder um, because not in, wages tend to be rigid in nominal time, uh, um, terms. So that's the argument to have a little bit of inflation and not allow it to go negative. Now, why you don't want it to go too high, like, you know, four, five, six percent, uh, is that it, it, it basically adds to a lot of business uncertainty. Mm. Uh, it can lead to businesses cutting back on their investment. Their hurdle rates for investment go up. And, and also, particularly for asset prices, if inflation's running at five or six percent, then bond yields are certainly and interest rates are going to be a lot higher than what they are today. And that would mean that equity valuations and housing valuations would come down. So asset prices around the world have been inflated over the last couple of decades because of this, you know, trend decline in interest rates and inflation. So if that were to change, you know, hold on to your hats because uh, it would put a lot of downward pressure on asset prices. But how quickly could it rise? Like re- re- inflation? Re- yeah, how, how quickly could it rise though? Well, again, I think you've got to distinguish between a one-off hit to inflation as we're seeing at the moment, I think, uh, and a, and a, and a process. I mean, inflation really ultimately to be sustained is a process and it's whereby, you know, you get a, a cycle of wage increases and price mm. increases and each one competing against the other to, to you know, to get a real income increase. So wages go up in the response to prices, prices go up in response to wages, and we get in this cycle. Mm. And that's what we had back in the 70s and 80s until, you know, central banks came in and clobbered the whole situation, and then we opened up the, the, the trade to global markets, and we got a lot of tech disruptions. So it all went away. Mm. But so how quickly, I mean, I think, you know, the exa- going back to the set... If you go back to the 60s and 70s, it actually started at quite a low level and gradually increased through the 60s. No one thought it was a problem, and then it exploded Until higher. Until it became a problem. I mean, what, what, what helped in the 70s, of course, is that OPEC at the time tripled the oil price. And uh, so when you triple something which at the time was a pretty important mm. price in the, in the economy, that was a cost shock that went right through the economy and businesses and workers competed to not be the ones to carry the can for that higher oil price price and that's why inflation did break out um, but in the moment look if we if it is a process barring a you know a shock i don't see a, a opec or anyone having that control to do that anymore uh it would be a process that would gradually happen over you know a, a two to three years i think mm. um but yeah so it would be gradual enough for central banks to react but what we, you know, ultimately, we, it's unlikely to happen, to be honest, until we get to full employment. And that's why, you know, I think at the moment, I, I wouldn't get overly concerned because I think you've got to wait till the US unemployment rates hit at least three and a half percent. It's still in the high fives. Um, and that's when you, if any, if you're ever going to get decent wage growth across the economy, uh, the unemployment rate probably needs to be a lot lower than it is at the moment. Mm. Um when, when you look at interest rates or inflation and then interest rates uh, historically, what the data say is that up until I think it's like three and a half or three point six percent. This is since the GFC. Um, risky assets or stocks typically move in the same direction as rates up until about three point five or three point six percent, and then mm. they start moving in the opposite direction. Um, it, I mean, that's what the data say, say from 2009 since the GFC. Do you? What's yep. your point of view on, on that? Do you, do you feel as though that's um, 
that's that's the that's the path ahead for us uh, in the situation that we're in, or do you think again it's different this time? Um, well, I think what you're pointing to is the fact that in the early stages of an interest rate cycle, so basically when you come out of a recession, um, central banks have got rates incredibly low to deal with a, a downturn. Then they start initially putting interest rates up because you know the, the economy is recovering. Demand is strong, earnings are strong. So that's a period where equity markets can rise even as interest rates rise because they're rising from a, a low level to mm. a, you know, a higher level. But as you said, if you get to the later stages of a cycle where you know unemployment's very low, central banks are worrying about inflation picking up and they start pushing rates higher, like into restrictive territory, that's when the tipping point happens. And that's, as you said, so, you know... It, it, so beyond a certain level, when interest rates go from, you know, low to normal to average, let's say, and then from average to high, that's the tipping point for equities. But I, I wouldn't have any hard and fast rules about what the tipping point is. I would just say at the moment, uh, I think the outlook for equities is still OK until such time as we get back to full employment. Um, and that's when... And what is full employment? It's certainly, in the case of the US, at least 3.5%, uh, which is, you know, we got down to those levels uh, prior to COVID. Uh, and at the moment, so we've got a runway of growth that we can, we can let the economy run before we need to worry about central banks raising rates. And again, they may never raise rates to the way to, to, to cause that, that major correction because it may turn out that because of globalisation, because of technology disruption, even at 3.5% unemployment rate, we just don't get the wages growth. And so that, that's uh, – so I, I'm not I'm – not I'm, I'm actually open-minded about, you know, where interest rates may go going forward because I personally don't see – the the case for an inflation breakout because of wages because I think it's a it's a different world to what it was you know a, a few decades ago back when we did have these quite uh, you know clear cycles of um, you know not too hot too cold in terms of the economy. You mentioned your um, so presumably then until such time as though uh, employment or employ or those in the US go back to employment and the, and the government benefits yeah. are cut off. Like really the next uh, June, July, August, I mean, how much do you really make out of that until we, until we cross the, the line in the sand? You mentioned, you, you talk about equities and you remain, if I'm reading between the lines, they're still optimistic um, or bullish. Uh, I'm not sure how strong of a word that might be coming across to you, but can we talk about equities for a moment? Um, evaluate, we talked about tech stocks at the beginning, we talk about um, a rotation from those um, growth-orientated tech giants to those that are those more undervalued stocks. When you look at um, uh, global stock stock markets around the world, and let's just use the US because it's the really really good example. Valuation um, historically looks bloody expensive. You look at um, forward earnings. You look at um, you look at the cyclically price adjusted um, earnings or the CAPE mm -hmm. um, and that's sitting at like 34 times which is the <coughs> second highest since the tech wreck back in 1999 yep. like you look mm -hmm. at some of these things and I guess the question is is growth at what price mm. what at what point in time does enough become enough because the more we pay and the more investors pay for something today yep. they're giving that up for the future so the less i pay for something today the greater my expected return the more i pay for something today the less my expected return and so when you when you look again historically when uh when you're buying equities at these levels the future earnings seven and ten years out it's just bloody low it's like three or four or five percent at best, with a really high correlation between the two. So the numbers say the more you pay, the less you get. The less you pay, the more you get. Like what's, what's your point of view on price and growth at yes. what price? Yeah, look, I, I have a kind of uh, – my first way to – maybe one way to think about what's going on in financial markets is first and foremost central banks – 
um, have faced, they've, they've basically gone from worrying about inflation being too high to worrying about it being too low. So in the last couple of decades, they've slashed rates to near zero levels. And so as a result, and then they promised to keep them very low. So what we've seen is that the returns on fixed income markets like bonds yes. has, has gone through the floor, right? So very weak um, long-term fixed. Now, the way I kind of think about the equity market, people say, oh, the P ratio, valuations are high, but it's because of interest rates are you know, low, so it's pushed up valuations. But, you know, the long-run return for equity is still a, a bubble because the long-run return for equities is now lower than it was. Well, I think basically what I think, you know, bigger picture here is the market is re-equilibrating to the fact that the long-run return from bonds is, is collapsed. Um, and so when you think about it, equities and bonds are two competing assets, the two major assets. Now, equities generally give you a higher return over time compared to bonds because they're more volatile, they're sure. riskier. But if the return, the long-run return on bonds goes down, then to re-equilibrate, the long-run return for equities also has to come down. And, you know, not, not you know, not that they two will equal, but the margin, the, the to, re, to re-establish the margin between the two. So in a way... So are you talking the, about, David, a, a premium yeah. between the two? So if, yes. if one's yes. going down, the other one's sort of following, yeah. but there's it maintains some level of premium above yeah. the other. Just simplistically, let's say the long-run return for, for bonds used to be 5% and for equities used to be 10%. So the premium was around about 5%. I'm just Now, say the long-run return from bonds has gone down to 1% and the premium for equities is still 5%, then your long-run expected return for equities drops from 10 to 6 Sure. Now, how does that happen? The PE ratios go up. So, so some people might say, oh, look, the long-run return for equities is poor. Um, I'm, I've got bad news for you. It, it probably is right, but relative to bonds, it's still going to be better. And um, it just comes back to the fact that, you know, central banks, for good or bad, have cut rates and it's and it's it's, re, it's changed valuations around the board. So the good news for investors that have been in the equity market during this enormous rally um, is the market pricing, you know, the higher the valuations go, as you point out, the lower the longer run return. So... Um, you enjoy the ride while it lasts, but if you're getting in, you know, now, don't rely on the returns you used to get, you know, decades ago for the equity market because, yeah, they are going to be somewhat lower. But that, so again, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bubble. What's happening is the market is readjusting to the the, the valuations in the bond market until such time as central banks change their mind on, on interest rates. So bottom line, yes, valuations are high. Uh, yes, the long run return from equities is less than what it used to be, but it's all part of this uh, re 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 um, if you like, of of, uh, of the markets. That's a really interesting point. I think uh, I I think I agree with you um, to the extent that it's a game of relativity rather than in absolute terms. I mean, if you look at it in absolute terms, then yeah, the returns look pretty. Yeah pretty mediocre from equities, especially when investors have been used to 15% per annum for the last however many years. And yes. it kind of does feel like we've been talking about and saying the the fact, you know, you should expect low returns going forward. It's like we've been saying that since 2013 or 14. It's another 10 years we've been talking about it. But I, I don't disagree with you, and I think it is a game of relativity, and it goes back to the original question you were, that you find that people are asking you and uh, what people are searching for, which is especially in, a, in an ageing demographic and in the hunt for yield and income, um, people need to take some level of risk. And so on that note then, what, what are you seeing, David, as a, um, a wedge to help solve the, the income and cash flow problem without going so high up the risk spectrum? Yeah, well, look, there's a few, look, in terms of, there's different ways to look in terms of something outside of the equity market. I mean, obviously, the traditional ways are cash, fixed rate bonds, and then equities. And um, look, something in between that's become incredibly popular talking about flows. And, you know, we have launched an ETF in this area, because it's giving access to an asset class that was otherwise harder, harder for you know the average investor to get access to is something called hybrids, for right. example. Yep. That's something in between. Um, it gives you, like bank hybrids, for example, they give you a, a reasonable yield, three three 3.5%. They also give you like franking credits. 
Um, now, this is something that is correlated with the equity market. So if the equity market sells off, the value of hybrids, because it's a credit product, the credit spread tends to widen, so the value of them go down. But if you look at it historically, they definitely go down much less than what the equity market does. Um, you know, and on average, around about one third. So if the market, you know, heaven forbid, was down 30 percent, the value of hybrids historically might be down, say, 10 percent going forward. Now, no, you know, no guarantees or anything, but that's just historically the way it's worked. Because, and effectively, when you're buying a hybrid, I, I mean, I, I basically simplify it. You're buying the the in the case of, say, Australian bank hybrids. I mean, the thing about them is, if a bank in Australia were to be, get into financial difficulty those hybrids can be converted into equity uh, and potentially your equity can get wiped out, right? So that's the risk you take when you buy hybrids. But what you're basically getting is it's the tail, you're basically getting paid for the tail risk of a major bank getting in a financial difficulty in Australia. So, it's, you know, small probability of a terrible thing happening, uh, but you're getting paid a good income for that, taking that risk. Now, and I say to people, if you're worried about you know, banks going under and I don't want to hold hybrids because banks are going under. Well, have a look at your portfolio, your share portfolio. You've already <laughs> you know, got the exposure. If banks go under, your equities are going to be toast before the hybrids are, 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 are toast. So, yeah. um, so anyway, just in terms of that, yeah, there's no easy answers, but that's one type of asset class that sits somewhere between equities and, and traditional cash and bonds, still offering a reasonable return. Um, you're taking on a bit more risk, but it's something, you know, in between uh, those two. And uh, we've seen, um, uh, you know, a lot of strong flows into um, our, um, our, our hybrid ETF um, on the back of, the, you know, investors searching for yield, mm. something outside of the equity market, for example. And this might be an asset allocator's question, but, you know, you talk about these types of securities and their valuation being at risk, meaning mm. they can go down. Yep. Maybe rarely do they go up as much as they go down. Sure. Um, and so when you allocate your cash to these things, do would you allocate them um, with some level into your sort of risky bucket, given that they do have, have that element of risk? Or do you see people sort of allocating them into 100% into the defensive bucket of their of their allocations? Or is that something that you may not just have any insight on? Look, it's it's yeah, it's really horses for courses to how you want to describe what a hybrid is. Sure. I mean, it's something between equities and traditional bonds. I mean, in some some uh, so it's really you know label how you want to label it is is really up to you. I mean, what I can tell you is the volatility of something like hybrids is certainly much closer to bonds than it is to equities. And so let's say like the stand. <laughs> I don't want to get too technical, but the volatility of returns in equities is something like 20 odd percent. So, you know, around, a, say, an average return of, say, let's say, let's say 10 percent average return for equities in a year. It's maybe not that anymore, but the stand on average, you, you, you said it's six now, David, we've got to lower our expectations, right? Yeah, yeah. So let's say it's five. Let's expect. Let's say it's five uh, percent, just to, just a, sure. as a, for a number. So the standard deviation of returns is twenty percent, which means that there's two thirds chance that equities will be, you know, anywhere between plus twenty five and minus fifteen. You know, that's the sort of range of, of volatility in any given year. Now, high, bonds, by contrast, the variation is around about three to five percent. So twenty percent versus three to five percent. Now, uh, hybrids generally have been uh, probably around that 7 to 8%. So the, the, so the higher than bonds, but certainly considerably less than, than equities. So um, so what, what you want to, how people name that, it's really up to them. There's no legal thing, you know, it's, sure. it's one's defensive and one's growth or whatever. It's really up to, up to you know, the advisor or the client, uh, the, the investors to how they want to, uh, it is what it is in terms of the return and the volatility and how you want to, Label it and, and use it is is really um, you know up to up to your um, your your decision. Can we, can we talk about um, the property market and maybe move on to to that if that's okay? Yeah. Um, what we've seen over the last few months um, and especially since the beginning of the year, this sort of warming up or fanning of a a warmer, even hotter property market. Auction clearance rates, are, I think last week they came in at like high 70s, 77, 78, but they've been, you know, 80 plus um, in, in the weeks prior. Um, what, what's going on there? Is it a function of um, banks' willingness to lend? Is it a function of people's 
uh, pay going up and having greater surplus income to direct to mortgages. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I think we all are familiar with the we want the family wants a bigger house with a study or a backyard and apartments have been absolutely toast over the course of the last six months or so for for those reasons so i, I sort of get that narrative around the upgrades mm. but where is this money coming from in order to fund the bigger house the bigger mortgage uh, etc where is this money coming from yeah, good question. I mean, look, first and foremost, I mean, I think what the driver has been is is um, if you think about Australian property here, you know, just talking about nationally, um, we've had we, prices relative to, say, household income for the past five or so years had actually gone sideways. So we've had a period where we had a we had a, a rise in prices, then we had a, a fall, you know, Sydney price, Sydney and Melbourne prices prior to COVID were falling there for a while because we had macro prudential controls come in, tighten the credit conditions and, and prices were falling there for a while. Uh, and then COVID came in and they fell a little bit more. So over the course of like a few years, they've actually gone sideways. On top of that, now you've had the RBA cut interest rates to, you know, record low levels. You know, you, people have been able to get a fixed rate mortgage at, you know, 2% or something, just crazy. Um, so mortgage affordability nationally, and I did a, a blog about this on our, uh, on our own website a few months ago saying it's never been, it, it hasn't been better in 20 years. So at the start of this year on the back of house prices having gone sideways, the RBA slashing rates, it, it, it was if you could get the deposit, <laughs> that's the big, if you had the mortgage deposit, the, the percent of income for someone on average income to buy a medium priced home was the best it's been in 20 years. So that was the match for the market to recover with the V-shaped recovery that we've been enjoying from COVID. So that's affordability, you know, is, is the key driver there. And, but, uh, you know, affordability wouldn't be, wouldn't trigger it were it not for the V-shaped recovery we're enjoying. The, the economic uh, recovery. Yes, the economic right. recovery from COVID. You know, we, we've dealt with COVID pretty well. Um, the unemployment rate has come r rushing in. And I think to some extent also it is a bit of a, um, a catch-up from a lull. You know, obviously during mu much of last year, the housing market was pretty dead. You know, you couldn't even go out to an auction to see, a, a, you know. That's so right. we, had a, we had a period of, of pretty weak activity. So part of what's going on is catch-up. But I think the key driver is just that, you know, affordability and the economy recovering. Uh, and and um, now, so where's the money coming from? It's, um, you know, low interest rates. I mean, what we see in Australia, when central banks slash interest rates, when they cut rates, people don't suddenly say, oh, now I can buy a house and don't have to spend as much on the house. I can buy something else. What they do is they go out and bid more for the house. <laughs> so, the, so the benefit of low rates is pretty quickly capitalised into the prices. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's what we're, what we're seeing. And as a result, I mean, the downside of this is when and if the RBA does eventually raise rates, I think it'll have a pretty quick effect uh, in cooling the market. Now, not crashing the market, but at least cooling the market. Um, yeah, so, and I think one other interesting thing, you know, the pessimists out there about housing for many years said, oh, housing will hold up until we get a recession. And when we get a recession, that's when the market will crash. Well, we got a recession last year, but but the government basically bailed everybody out because it was a recession caused by COVID. And so, um, it, you know, I guess the view was it was a recession that was an undeserved recession. The, the economy crashed because governments told people they couldn't go to go to work and had to stay home and shops had to shut. So it was an unusual recession is that even if even though unemployment did go up, which we would have thought would have forced a lot of people to sell their mm. property and cause prices to go down. We had, you know, JobKeeper and we had banks basically giving people a repayment holiday. Um, so the conditions for that crash that we thought might happen during a recession basically didn't come to pass. I think NAB came out and said not like 98% of their loans are now back on track. So, mm. you know, it's gone from, you know, this many being... Uh, off track to now, you know, a very small proportion, and, yes. and I suspect that'll begin to normalise over the the coming months as well. As you point out about having a V-shaped um, recovery, who who distinguishes an undeserving recession, David? Um, yes. So just picked up on that. 
Yeah. One, who distinguishes that? And then two, do you think going forward we're going to have these boom busts that are more flashy than they may have been decades ago and central banks in and around the world are becoming far more entangled in economies and financial systems and playing a much larger role. Um, so, sorry, there's like three questions there, but who, who, who determines yeah, uh, look, the undeserving? I got that term from, and this is one of, the, one of the lessons of last year was that when you think about the recession, so go back, typically recessions come about because of two, either two things historically. It's been either an inflation breakout, like mm-hmm. unemployment gets too low, wages start picking up, and central banks actually deliberately start slowing the economy. And when, you, when you're actually deliberately slowing the economy to keep inflation in check, you can't bail everybody out, right? Because that's the whole point is to, is to cause unemployment, is to cause a slowdown. And that's going back you know, in the old days, the 90s recession, the 80s recession. That's what a typical recession looks like. And that's why you don't get the bailouts. Now, the other type of uh, recession is whether credit crunch, as we saw during the GFC. We didn't get a um, recession in Australia, but the US certainly did. And when you get an like excess lending, we had something like that in the late 1980s. But when it's a credit bubble that bursts, again, you can't bail people out because you've got to let the system cleanse itself in a way. But do you agree? Um, do you do you agree or disagree with the fact that the system didn't really get cleansed out because maybe households did not get bailed out, but corporations got bailed out? You mean during COVID? Uh, during the GFC. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the US, I mean, this is where, you know, the US, it was the, the too big to fail problem. I mean, the, ba- right. the, 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 bank, the banks in the US, rightly or wrongly, convinced regulators that they were too big to fail. If you, if, if you let us um, fail, we, we, we're going to have an absolute implosion in credit conditions and have a great depression. Now, we'll never know whether that was true or not, because they never let it, <laughs> they never risked it. Uh, we did. They did let Lehman's go bust, and it did create a mini implosion. But thereafter, basically, the banks were effectively bailed out through various reasons, and they mm. never did get the cleansing. But as I was going to say, the difference with COVID was that because the this recession was caused by governments basically mandating pe- uh, shops to shut. Yeah, and, sure. So sure. it was a downturn in a sense, undeserved. And so as a result, they are they were able to create uh, support. So they said you can't go, sh- you can't, you can't go to, uh, you can't go to work, or you can't open the shop. But by the way, here's a here's a suitcase full of money to spend. Sure. <laughs> uh, so it was it was kind of a weird downturn. But um, where was I getting to? So that's what I mean by undeserved. And this time it was a recession that was undeserved. So we had a lot of stimulus supporting it. But I think what's going to be interesting going forward is this. You know, if we have a recession for whatever reason next time, how quickly will they be bringing out the support? Yeah. Uh, because but, but also I think that there'll be an expectation from yes. investors and the community and uh, consumers that governments are now um, yes. uh, causing or creating a precedent that they are going to be involved. Yes. And so... And the, and the housing market, that's interesting because... Again, we used to say the housing market won't crash until we get a recession, whereas now some people will say, well, maybe it won't crash even during a recession because we're all going to get bailed out. <laughs> mm, mm. Um, Sorry, yeah. yeah, and so I, I just, I'm genuinely curious whether or not these, these booms and busts are going to happen more frequently than maybe we've seen over the course of the last 50 or 100 years, just purely because of governments getting uh, far more yeah. or central banks getting far more involved and governments for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, getting far more involved than than they have been. Yeah. What's your so under, understand the 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 driver and the cocktail mix of ingredients, if you like, that have now created or caused uh, property markets to go to be where they are. And it sounds like it's largely driven by well, it's driven by those that can raise their hand and bid higher and higher price to get it to where it is today. Um, and when you talk about cooling, if interest rates are going up. I think a lot of people have this impression that markets can either go one of two ways. They're going to go up or they're going to go down. Uh, but not many people talk about this concept of, you, you mentioned it before, this lull period where not much happens for a period of time and that could last yeah. 12, 18, 24, 36 uh, months. Yeah. 
What's your forecast for the property market, the residential property market from where we are today? Yeah, and so look, my forecast is I think we're going to probably have another three to six months of uh, pretty strong conditions, like house prices going up. Uh, I, I do think eventually um, APRA and the RBA will step in and do macro, so-called macroprudential controls, and so they'll they'll um, rein in, you know, in, increase the the borrowing requirements. Will make it harder mm. for people to get a loan, essentially. Um, and, and, and sort of cool the market without necessarily having to raise interest rates. Uh, and then the market will probably go through a period, a sideways period of low. And and look, and again, if you look at Sydney, uh, we had a boom in the late 90s and then in the early 2000s, and then we went sideways for about a decade. So Sydney, you know, from about 2004, I'm trying, you know, from 2004 to say about 2012, um, not quite a decade, but we had a period where prices, you know, rose maybe at an annualised rate of about one to two percent. Mm. So that was almost a decade of one to two percent in uh, prices. Because, and it goes back to affordability. Basically, when affordability reaches a level that the average homeowner can't pay more for a home, there's only a limit to how far prices can go. Right. right? You know, I can't I can't afford to pay fifteen million dollars for a home. Right um, now, I might be on an above-average income, you know, not, <laughs> but I mean, the average homeowner, you know, whatever the average earn, income is, is, let's say it's a hundred thousand dollars, a hundred and fifty thousand dollars family income. Then, if you do the calculations, you say the after the the maximum amount an average household could spend on a mortgage is say thirty percent of after-tax income. You know how far house prices can go before the average sure. homeowner can't pay anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. That's uh, th that's sort of the limiting factor, and you can see it. There's an affordability um, index. You know, many economists uh, have an affordability index, and you know, you see historically when it gets to a certain level, house prices stop rising. And where and where, where are gets, we where are we now in that cycle, David? Well, on your affordability uh, index. Uh, early at, uh, back in February, when I put out a blog, it was actually at quite low levels because house prices have gone sideways and the RBA cash. Now, at the moment, I don't think we're back at those peak levels yet, but, I mean, I think over the next six months, we probably will get back to those levels. Um, and, and if we don't, you know, so, again, if the RBA were to do nothing, house prices would keep going, and I'm talking generally here nationally, to a level where, you know, if the marginal buyer couldn't afford to pay anymore, and that's when the market would yeah. start to... In fact, I think, I think it was NAB that came out, their economics team, and had a forecast that prices will rise or are likely to rise a further 10% this year. And this is maybe a month or so uh, ago now. Do you disagree or agree or somewhat agree, somewhat disagree with that forecast? Uh, Look, I, I'd be, yeah, 10% seems quite quite reasonable. I mean, I think the market is very hot and it's probably going to get hotter because um, the economy is only going to get better um, and there's still mm. a ways to go before uh, central bank, you know, certainly the RBA is still of a view not to raise rates for at least a couple of years. Yes. And that's why I think they'll do macro potential beforehand, but they won't do it until the, the market gets a lot hotter than it is now. So it seems to be only one way at the moment, mm. you know, in terms of the market. So uh, if you're looking to buy property, buy now before uh, prices get maybe maybe a little bit too high. Well, it's funny that fear of missing out is you know driving the market. I guess you know. Uh, yeah, you're not. That's right. So you're not you're not wrong. Um, what's you, two two things? Uh, sorry, one thing that I'm really curious about, like in in your mind, at the back of your mind, no doubt there is something there that you think about. You think uh shit if this happens this we could we could just blow up like what yeah. is that risk that is in the back of david's mind that just creeps yeah. up from time to time and maybe just scares you a little bit look in terms of the macro economy it's um you know look i think ultimately look i my my underlying view here is that central banks are fighting the last war on inflation i mean i think inflation is going to stay lower than central banks are comfortable with for a long time. Uh, and because of the structural things that I've mentioned, globalisation, technology, these sort of things. So they're probably going to keep rates too low for too long and maybe cause an equity bubble uh, and, and or a housing bubble. So I guess what ultimately worries me is that uh, by fighting the last war, central banks could create a, an asset bubble 
uh, of the sort, you know, we saw, you know, maybe going back 20 years ago during the dot-com bubble days. Um, but something, because even the dot-com bubble was, you know, constrained mainly to the tech sector, but this could affect all markets. And so I do worry, and you know, you know, you mentioned the moral hazard problem as well. You know, if if people think you're going to get bailed out with a with a with a sell-off, you know, just just be just be all in, right? Because if things go badly, you're going to That's get right. a bailout. So it's that moral hazard plus central banks chasing an inflation target, which is unobtainable creating an almighty bubble in equity market, uh, in asset markets. I don't say, think some people think we're there yet. I don't think we're there yet. I think it can go a lot higher before we get to that point. But that's the the worry, you know, I think uh, I, I have. Um, but, uh, and so that's why, you know, just watching the markets to see how it all, all plays out uh, at, at the moment. And so <clears throat> where, where, where's the big red X marked on the uh, forward earnings or the CAPE ratio for David? <laughs> you know, is it like 45 times where you say, I'm, I'm liquidating the equity portfolio now because yeah. this is just insane? Because well, the, the highest you know, the it got was 44 yeah. times in, in, the, in the dot-com bubble. Yeah, well, again, like, so if you think about the S&P 500 in the dot-com bubble, it got to 25 times forward earnings. Yes. Um, now, would you believe we're at 22 times earnings today? But the big difference is the interest rates are a lot lower. So as I said, that looking at purely PE ratios alone is probably not the best sure. thing. You've got to allow for low rates. And so if you think about it, the equity risk premium, so that's the market's earnings yield, less bond yield, uh, got negative, you know, like the earnings yield of the market was, you know, um, uh, well below the bond yield. And so if we get mm. to that sort of situation, so, you know, depending on bond yield, if the if the PE ratio, you know, could go to 40, you know, it's a 22 today. It, it, if it gets to 35 over the next five years, like that's a bubble, you know, and this is, and again, if if central banks keeping rates, if, if 10-year bond yields in five years' time are still only 2%, um, P ratio could go a lot higher. Mm. That's the that's the challenge. Um, and there are and as I said, going back to what we we're talking about earlier, the long run outlook for equities with a P ratio of forty will be very very low. Mm. But it'll be a good ride to get there. Yeah, you know the ride getting there will be beautiful. <laughs> but once you once we're at that top, then the the outlook it won't be so good. So it's, uh, it's just like the the good party that lasts for a little bit too long, right? Um, what's um, and the answer might be the same here. Might wrap up, David. Is we're sitting here in the year 2023-2024, and you sort of look back. What what do you feel as though is the biggest regret that investors have seen uh, from now to then? Look, I think not. Look, not being invested in the markets. Uh, I think you know. I. I I think, you know, equity markets are volatile. I think you're going to get uh, setbacks along the way between now and, say, 2023, like corrections. But I, until we get to US full employment, which I still think is two to three years away, then the, the worry of a big recession is probably... Uh, the big bear markets come with, with recessions. And I think we're still two or three years away before we could worry about a renewed recession caused by very low unemployment. So in the main, I think equities are going to continue to do okay. Um, but if you're constantly worried about setbacks in the market and not wanting to get in, um, you know, you may miss that over, over the next three years. And uh, you may, and it's a bit like Sydney house prices, you know, um, people don't want to buy Sydney prices because they're so expensive and every year they watch them go even higher. <laughs> Mel Melbourne's not too dissimilar. Look, David, I think you're right. Um, as, as long as you're aware of the, the, the game that you're playing and the rules to that game, uh, I, I think it's a sit down, buckle up and let's just go for that ride. But, but understand that, you know, you could, you could be doing this for the, for the next two years and then um, absolutely dropping 15, 20 the year after. And I think as long as investors are, are aware of that and there are, uh, to some extent, are no surprises, it makes the ride just a little bit easier to be able to digest. Um, one, one final thing, uh, I, I, I'm from Melbourne um, and you're from Sydney or you're in Sydney or live in Sydney at the moment. From what I understood that there was a, on Bondi, there was a private Italian uh, style beach club that was going to open, proposed to be open. Yeah. Uh, you're smiling. 
I, I, I heard from a little birdie that you were quite passionate about that. Why is that? <laughs> oh, look, I, I'm on Twitter, you know, I, I tweet about various things, the markets. Are, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you're involved in that. <laughs> look, I, it was a proposal. I don't know where it's even gone, but I, I just read about it and I just thought, you thought well, it was a shit I, idea. I, Why? I, I lived at Bondi myself uh, opposite the beach there for like five or six years. So I do know and, and love Bondi and I love the 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 you know, open to all nature of, of Bondi. And I, I just didn't like the idea of something being, you know, walled off. And, Mate, it was like you know, two, 2% of the beachfront. There's plenty of space. <laughs> well, you know, two percent today. 4% <laughs> That's a good point. That's a really good point. Uh, they they, they start off with this, and then you know, slowly I'm each and every year. Private enterprise, but I'm all for um, you know, <laughs> Australian. I love the uh, open nature, the democratic nature of Australian beaches compared to say parts of Europe. You know, I've been to Europe where you do have the walled off sections, yeah. and you you get your lovely deck chair and your your cocktail and all that sort of stuff. It's very nice, but. Um, you know, I, that was just my little my little dig about it. Maybe something between Europe and Australia, maybe like a, a Balinese experience might be somewhere in the middle for you, David. Uh, the hypocrisy of it all, of course, is that if it did open, I'd probably go and use the services. <laughs> I can see you there, man. I can see you there lounging in your banana in your in your banana chair, your blue and white striped beach towel. <laughs> David, this has been awesome. Um, thank you so much great. for your, no, your perspective, no. your point of view. Um, maybe we can have another conversation when the PE ratio is sitting at around 26.5. Uh, we'll, see, uh, we'll see where the world sits at that point in time. But, uh, David, thanks again. No worries. Good to be with you. Thanks, David. Okay.